trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. All right, let's get this thing started. Thank you, first of all, for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. There's, I know there's, there's a part of me that's like, you know, it would be so great if the ideas, the principles, the practices of, oh, I don't know, personal liberty, freedom of conscience, private property rights, free market economics, if that would catch on, I would be Mr. Popularity. But instead, I kind of have to just get by on my good looks. So I guess what I'm saying is life is hard. <laughs> There's a reason why you hear my voice and don't necessarily see my image. Nonetheless, glad you could be a part of the show today. Our, our program is brought to you by MonticelloCollege.org, also HSLAmmo.com, and Pure-Light.com. So I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, Tim Alders, who is, uh, he, he coined the phrase Disciples of Liberty and actually hosts a, a radio show by that same name. Um, he's also the author of a book called The Origins of Liberty. And Tim asked me a question, and, and I, I, I'm almost ashamed of my answer because I, I dove into it from a whole different angle than, than what uh, he was getting at. Tim asked me, you know, which of your freedoms remains? Now, because of what I talk about, you might guess, well, Brian, you probably gave him a semi-pessimistic answer. And you'd be right. I did. <laughs> I, I uh, you know, I said, I don't know how I could how I could qualify, you know, what what ones remain. But, uh, you know, here's where I think our time is best spent. Basically, less engagement with the state, more engagement with the other institutions that make up a healthy society. Now, it's a, it's a reasonable answer, but it's not the direction he was going. And I'm I'm grateful for Tim's answer, which he said, look, if someone asked me which, what remains of, of your liberties, his answer would be this, all of them, or at least as many as I am willing to claim and use and, and defend. And I know that may seem like kind of a strange place to start out, but let's, let's follow that for just a moment and just, just, just so we understand I'm never proposing that, hey, there's a one-size-fits-all approach and you have to agree with this or, you know, somehow you're a bad person. You're either evil or, or you're stupid. You and I both know that's not the case. And even if you listen to me and you think, boy, he's, he's kind of evil and stupid, that's not the case either. I think we're all trying to approach the truth from, from the, the most advantageous way, how it adds to our lives, how it uh, gives meaning to our existence. And one of the truths that I have arrived at is that uh, freedom is important. But people who don't understand how important it is are not likely to stand up for it. Why? Because they could be subjected to criticism. They could be called names. They could be ostracized. They could be singled out for, you know, cancel culture or for the two minutes hate. I guess it's kind of the same thing. But if you don't know what you stand for, if you don't have a clue, I mean, look, we can all say, well, you know, uh, given the choice between I'd like more freedom or less freedom, of course, I want to take more freedom. Because I think we, we intrinsically 
connect that it's a good thing. But that's where a lot of people's understanding stops. Yeah, it's a good thing. Okay, so how do you get it? Well, uh, it's yours. <laughs> it's yours by, by dint of the fact that you're a living, breathing human being. And that's partially true. Your rights, your natural rights, I like to put them, your God-given rights, are a part of you because you are a living, breathing human being. Now, this doesn't exclude, you know, children in utero. But I'm saying you would find most people, even people who may be on various sides of, of the, uh, you know, abortion debate, would agree that if, if a human being is a human being, if they are alive, then they ought to, uh, they have rights that, that ought to limit the power of government over them and the limit to, to limit the power of others around them to infringe on those rights. I mean, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness or property, that's just a nice summary, but it encompasses tons of rights. I mean, we, could, we would take a long time to enumerate what all of those natural rights are. I just want to give a shout out, though, to Tim Alders and, and tell you he's, he's got the right idea. It doesn't depend on what the Supreme Court currently rules about what this piece of paper with this writing on it says. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who believe that. Well, you know, we've got to go by the Constitution and what it says. And if they say that, uh, you know, our rights or our freedoms are dependent upon what the Constitution says, I'm sorry, but they're missing an essential part of the puzzle. The Constitution was written to call government into existence for the purpose of protecting and guaranteeing the natural rights that already exist in every single human being. In other words, it calls government to, into existence, but it also puts a very clear limit on the powers that government may rightly exercise. And it does so for the purpose of keeping it from infringing on people's basic natural rights. I do disagree with some of my uh, you know, fellow travelers who say, well, you know, in order to have those rights, you have to be a U.S. citizen. I don't agree with that. All you have to be is a human being because the contract of, of the, the Constitution, it's a compact, a contract between multiple parties, the states, is binding on the government. It's not binding on you or me or any of the people. This is what I guess a lot of people don't get. It took me a long time to figure it out, too. So it's not like, gee, I knew it all along. I had to learn and, and understand you don't even want to be a few degrees off on this because you need to know the flow of political power. It comes from the people and goes to government, which is then trusted with that power, at least temporarily, to use it in the interest of the people. And I'm not going to you know, sit here and preach, and now's the time to get your pitchforks and your torches. But how hard do you have to look, really? How deep do you have to scratch beneath the surface to, to find evidence of how uh, government is currently using those powers against you? And for the benefit of its, its well-connected either um, workers or, or members or just its cronies. I mean, it, it happens. And it happens at every level. You see it writ large on the federal level. It's, uh, it's definitely visible at the state and county levels. But yeah, even down to your municipality, you can find a lot of examples of people who will run with power that really isn't theirs. Or who will use their power in ways that, uh, that harm other people in their natural rights. So here's the, this is the challenge before us. How do we become the kind of people who can recognize when that's happening? 
And that doesn't mean that therefore you're at every protest and you are waving a placard and you are chanting in unison. It just means that you're the kind of person who can clearly and independently think for yourself and arrive at your own conclusions. It doesn't mean you won't seek advice from other people, particularly people with particular knowledge. But more importantly, you're not depending on someone else to tell you what it all means. You don't need some government expert to tell you, you know, here are your rights uh, to free speech. Here's your constitutional right to carry a gun. And I know it's look, I I don't want to be that guy. Well, actually, you know, correcting everybody on, on the Internet. But it's good to understand this distinction. The Constitution gives you no rights. None. It gives me no rights. All it does is it very specifically limits the power of government and directs the power of government for the purpose of protecting and guaranteeing those rights, which existed before government was called into existence. That's hard for people to get their minds around. And it's really hard for people who uh, have, have been taught that, look, I have to get my way. I have to make people do what I want them to do at any given time. I mean, the truth of the matter is we all have a tyrant that lives inside us. Every single one of us. And sometimes that's an unpleasant discovery because it seems very reasonable. I'm just trying to protect my property rights or my property value is really where that's going to come from. This is why I sick the code enforcement officers on my neighbor. Why their lawn was a full three inches longer than it should have been. Mm, Wow. Good thing we got the state involved. Good thing somebody was threatened with fines and maybe some other sanctions rather than just uh, go over and talk to your neighbor. (laughs) Be a good neighbor and ask him, can I help you here? You know, I've got I've got strong boys. They'd they'd be happy to help if if you know you need if your yard's getting away from you. We're here to help. All right, I'm going to jump off that subject. We, we've got to go to break here in a moment. When we come back, part of that process of becoming a better thinking, a more clear thinking individual. And I have to stipulate that doesn't mean one who agrees with me or any other expert, but someone who thinks for yourself, who susses things out for yourself, and comes to your own conclusions. You've got to be able to think clearly and logically. And I'm going to share with you the final installment from Paul Rosenberg's Fallacies essay series. I mean, he has written a bunch of these. And these fallacies in brief are fascinating because you recognize, oh, yeah, I hear people use this all the time. Well, he'll teach you how to recognize them as well as how to counter them and become a clearer thinker in the process. We'll be back in a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I want to jump right in with this essay from Paul Rosenberg. This is Fallacies in Brief. This is the third in a series of Fallacies in Brief, where he covers a lot of different logical fallacies, some of which I've heard of, and and some um, I've heard the argument, but didn't know that that was the name for it. So, in the quest to become a better thinker, learn how to recognize when these rhetorical tricks are being used against you, or to silence someone who is dissenting. Um, once you recognize it, it's it's not a very difficult thing to negotiate or to to navigate rather. And it might save you some time. You know, if I mean, look, standing there and having an argument, will it really solve a problem? In most cases, probably not. 
However, if you have bystanders or if you have someone who is sincerely looking for truth, well, this is handy stuff to know. The first one that uh, Paul Rosenberg talks about is called Kafka trapping. I know if you, if you grew up reading uh, Franz Kafka in uh, um, in you know high school, you'll recognize, oh yeah, that was the guy who wrote all the weird stuff. So here's what Kafka trapping consists of. It's a sophisticated argument or group of arguments focused on imposing guilt upon an opponent and then using his or her sense of guilt as evidence against them. Now, he says this is obviously an especially malicious form of argument. But Paul Rosenberg says if it's used by a skilled manipulator, it can actually be very effective. Most people, after all, have a keen sense of justice and a proclivity for self-examination. So they can, with well-chosen assertions, be made to feel guilty for something. And with that, the manipulator can close his or her case, claiming the other person that the other person has revealed their guilt by feeling guilty. I don't know why, but I'm thinking of uh, I'm thinking of the scene from The Lion King where Mufasa returns and Scar is threatening him. Well, wouldn't it be a shame if people knew how a family member died? And anyway, I I, uh, digress. Making things worse, Paul Rosenberg says this trick doesn't require the manipulator to use any arguments that can be easily shown false. So this is a sociopath's means of abusing normal people. And a sociopath has no capacity for real remorse, while healthy people certainly do. So sociopaths can use this trick to great effect while being immune to it themselves. Now, he says, if you ever come on this trick in use, if you ever come upon this, please jump in and assert strongly and more than once, if necessary, that feelings of guilt are not evidence. Like fear, guilt can arise from purely imaginary concepts. People who imagine doing something bad will often feel bad even though they didn't actually do something. Boy, that does sound like a manipulative tactic. Okay, file it away. Next one, wishful thinking. Believing something because it's pleasing to imagine rather than according to evidence or reason. Now, Rosenberg says this is obviously a poor way of reaching conclusions, but it can be emotionally satisfying. After all, this world can be unfairly difficult, and many of us deserve more and better than we've received. So a reason to believe that the better things can come to us is deeply attractive. Now, learning that life can be unfair and that clear thinking is required if we are to surpass it can be a painful lesson. But he says, as unfortunate as it may be, and it is, that the pres- that is the present state of the world. So wanting to believe and throwing in with empty hope, however, leads us to suffering. Sometimes learning the hard way is necessary for us, but at least we should learn from it the first time we get slapped by it. We suffer needlessly if we keep repeating the error. Okay, here's one that you'll hear quite a bit in this uh, age of cancel culture. Judgmental language. It's common for a less than careful or less than honest speaker to surround their arguments with insulting or pejorative language, hoping to influence listeners' judgment. Now, obviously, this is a bad way of reaching any conclusion. It works mainly by wearing down the minds of those listening until they're willing to wander from reason and go with feelings that have been deceitfully implanted. Now, let's not pretend that this is limited to one side of the political spectrum, because it's not. And actually, there are a fair number of uh, commentators on the conservative side who've made a great living out of name-calling and insulting pejorative language. So, yeah, does it work to attract an audience? Absolutely, it does. 
Does it do anything beneficial for the sake of the people in that audience? Does it give them better light and understanding? And the answer is no. Because it's deliberately trying to implant feelings. All right, enough said. Next, we have appeal to tradition, asserting that a conclusion is true because tradition holds it to be true and or good. Now, Paul Rosenberg says traditions, of course, exist in many forms, and they can be good or bad. And other people believing something, even good people and beloved relatives, doesn't make it true. Who believes something says nothing about whether it's true or false. More than that, all humans, including ourselves and our beloved ancestors, have made mistakes. And if we never leave the choices of the past, how can we ever hope to move forward? So all progress is to some extent a condemnation or at least an abandonment of the past. We're meant to move forward. And he says what that necessarily means that tradition should not be binding upon us. We may enjoy traditions and appreciate them, but if we hold too tightly to them at the expense of the future, we turn them into things their creators would most likely have opposed. Okay, here's a favorite chronological snobbery. That's the assertion that an idea is incorrect because it was believed when something else known to be false was also believed. For example, that idea is crazy. The people who believed that also believed in bleeding the sick. Now, Paul Rosenberg says when a statement was made has no bearing upon whether it's true or false. Each stands on its own and must be judged against reality. So he says, bear in mind, please, that many of the things people believe today will a few centuries from now appear very silly. That won't make everything we believe false. And again, I'm going to just throw in this plug for this is why you want to read books that were written long before you lived. Yes, they can be difficult to read. Sometimes the language is more flowery or more, you know, uh, uh, technical than, than what we're used to. But at least it causes you to step out of your own time and into the mind of another person from another time. And you'll recognize for, for whatever faults they had, and they certainly had faults because they were human. They also had some really great ideas, even if everything they believed didn't necessarily pan out. That's what becoming a critical, independent thinker is about. Finding what's of value, discarding what doesn't work for you. Okay, here the, here's another fallacy. You've heard of this one before. Straw man fallacy. That's broadening or narrowing someone's argument to make it easier to attack. So an old example of this came when Martin Luther opposed the way the Catholic Church performed the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. Some of the Catholics set up a straw man by unfairly broadening Luther's arguments to say that he opposed the Eucharist altogether, and then declaring how wrong he was, seeing that the New, T New Testament speaks about it directly. But the solution to this trick is, first of all, not to get angry, since anger is a deviation from careful analysis, which can be used by your opponent. Then, as we so often recommend, back up and restate things. In Luther's case, a good method would have been to look at it backward. Now, you say that the Eucharist was ordained by the Lord himself. I agree. My argument, if you will permit me to make it, is that we have been doing it poorly. That's a good example. Then there's appeal to hypocrisy. That your argument should be cast off because you fail to live up to it yourself. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, look, hypocrisy is poor behavior, of course, but human weakness makes no argument false or true. Each argument stands on its own. So what any of us say will be true or false because of the arguments themselves, it's, it's because of the arguments themselves, not because of who we are or become bad people. It'll be true or it'll be false because it's a sound argument, right? 
not because you're perfect and I'm fallible. He says, bear in mind that humans are mixed creatures. Inside the vast majority of even deeply damaged people can be drawn good things and good lessons. Certainly, you'll be more likely to find such treasures among especially good people, but you can probably learn something from almost anyone. That's pretty powerful stuff. And that comes from being able to listen to other people and learn from them. What did I see today? I think it was T.K. Coleman said something about your ability to learn is limited by exactly how much you are willing to listen and learn from others. I'm going to write that one down. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I like where we are going next because I'm going to share with you uh, an essay here from Barry Brownstein. This was published on intellectualtakeout.org earlier today. Also got his email. And if you haven't signed up to to get the emails that he sends out, uh, I think you'll find his writing very worthwhile. Barry's always got a solid take on stuff. And this dovetails so beautifully with what we were talking about earlier, becoming clear and independent thinkers, becoming the kind of people who think and act for themselves. And this doesn't mean, you know, I'm, I, you know I'm a law unto myself. I am Judge Dredd. Somebody takes my parking space. I am the law. No, and it's, it's nothing like that. It's, it's more a matter of you don't have to turn to somebody and ask for permission. May I believe this? <laughs> and then wait, you know, Dr. Fauci, can we believe that? Or shall we hold off? You know, we're just waiting to find out. Barry Brownstein has this essay, Why Humans Increasingly Are Unaware of Their Ignorance and Why It's a Big Problem. And I have to say, as I read this, I was like, oh, this hurts because I, I recognize some of the mistakes in here that I am making, too. So my goal here isn't to make you feel guilty. If you feel it, just know I felt it, too, because I recognize these are some places I need to work on. And he starts with the question, at what point does collective ignorance parade as truth? Keep this in mind. Jim Farrell of the Arbinger Institute asks, Has there ever been a time in the world's history when people were more sure of their opinions? Farrell observes, we become set in our opinions precisely because we've lost sight of the fact that they are merely opinions. Our culture is suffering from what one might call opinion creep, the elevation of unsupported thoughts to the status of opinions and opinions to convictions. And Barry Brownstein says, we don't have we don't know how to have civil disagreements anymore. We fail to recognize that having a thought doesn't make our thinking the truth. And Farrell writes, we tend to have convictions about many things and to have opinions about almost everything else. Do we blind ourselves to the enormity of our ignorance? Now, Brownstein writes about cognitive scientists Stephen Sloman and Philip Fernbach in their book, The Knowledge Illusion. This is how they put it. In general, we don't appreciate how little we know. The tiniest bit of knowledge makes us feel like experts. Once we feel like an expert, we start talking like an expert. Now, Barry says we take that tiny bit of knowledge, and as Farrell observes, we elevate it to a conviction. And Sloman and Fernbach write, quote, The feeling that overwhelms us is if only they understood. 
If only they understood how much we care, how open we are, and how our ideas would help. They would see things our way. But here's the rub. While it's true that your opponents don't understand the problem in all its subtly, subtlety rather, and complexity, neither do you. End quote. So we share our, if they only understood, opinions with like-minded individuals. And when the like-minded like our opinions, does our arrogance increase? At what point does collective ignorance parade as truth? Now, in a 2005 interview, Clint Eastwood put it bluntly. Extremism is so easy. You've got your position and that's that. It doesn't take much thought. Think about how many arguments you've seen on social media or maybe even in real life. That started with the fact that I took this position and that's all I really need to know. That's my position and I'm going to defend it to the death. Now, from here, Barry Brownstein goes into how the Internet enables opinion creep. And he asks the question, is it in fact enabling it? Well, accessing information with ease, he writes, we may believe we are well informed, yet be blind to the enormity of our ignorance. We think we are experts even when we know little. Been very guilty of this myself. And I, and I know of hosts who, you know, will read one or two articles and then talk about, I have deeply researched this subject. And, you know, I mean, they're, they're claiming an expert uh, or an expertise that really isn't rightfully theirs. And I mean, I'll give them credit, but at least they looked at something. But, you know, you can you can tell the people who have really taken command of a subject and who have really paid the price to know. But there's there's nothing to be gained from the superficial posing. I, I scratched the surface and I believe I know enough to make an informed decision. That doesn't mean you have to wander around in a perpetual state of indecision. It just means, you know, you have to be able to, to utter these words based on what I understand or to the best of my knowledge, such and such. But legitimately be open to the fact that maybe there's more there. Maybe, you know, maybe. That humility has to be a part of the, of the situation. As Yale University researchers Matthew Fisher, Mariel Gaudu, and Frank Kyle conducted a series of nine experiments, they reported in their journal article, Searching for Explanations, How the Internet Inflates Estimates of Internal Knowledge. And they said, ready access to the Internet has changed how we perceive what we know as well as don't know and how we search for information. So the researchers ask, might the Internet's unique accessibility, speed, and expertise cause us to lose track of our reliance upon it, distorting how we view our own abilities? Their experiments show that the answer is yes. Searching for answers online leads to an illusion that such externally accessible information is conflated with knowledge in the head. A simple online search can inflate our opinion of our knowledge. After using Google to retrieve answers to questions, researchers found people seem to believe they came up with these answers on their own. Now, alarmingly, this delusion of knowledge carries over to unrelated areas when we're offline. Research showed that participants who searched online believed they had sharper minds. They rated themselves as being able to give significantly better explanations to the questions in unrelated domains. The Yale studies were conducted before Amazon Echo, Google Home, and other voice-controlled personal assistant devices became ubiquitous. So has the ability to ask Alexa further increased blindness to our ignorance? Will Alexa contribute to the opinion creep that Farrell observes? From here, he talks about the Dunning-Kruger effect. Human ignorance is inevitable. That's not an insult. That's just a reality. 
It is ignorance of our ignorance that concerns psychology professor David Dunning. We can call it we can call ignorance of our ignorance invincible ignorance when normal feedback from an individual's working environment does little to disabuse them of their lack of skills. In fact, perversely, the worse we are at something, the more likely we will overrate our skills. In Dunning's words, the knowledge and intelligence that are required to be good at a task are often the same qualities needed to recognize that one is not good at a task. And if one lacks knowledge and intelligence, one remains ignorant that one is not good at that task. In short, incompetence robs us of the ability to realize it. We're left with the erroneous impression that we're doing just fine. If I could just offer this quick aside. The place where I first experienced this for myself was the first time I attended a high-quality defensive firearms training school. I was a good shot. I'd been shooting since I was 12 years old, and I knew how to handle a gun, and I knew about gunfights, and I knew tactics, and I thought I, I really thought I knew a lot. And it turns out I didn't know what I didn't know until after I got through that first four-day class, and I was a much different individual at the end of four days, starting with uh, I was eating a lot of humble pie that first couple of days because I just didn't know what I didn't know. Maybe you've experienced something similar, but that's where I first realized, yeah, if, you, if you're going to learn something, first thing you've got to learn to do is set your ego aside. Barry Brownstein writes, among my faculty colleagues were professors who performed poorly in the classroom and yet were convinced that their teaching skills were among the best in the university. See, in their minds, it wasn't their lack of skills, but students who were generating undesirable outcomes. These faculty were profoundly ignorant of possibilities for creating richer learning environments. Believing they were excellent already, they became indignant at suggestions for improvement. In a New York Times interview, Professor Dunning wrote how our invincible ignorance keeps us from developing. He says people tend to do what they know and fail to do that which they have no conception of. In that way, ignorance profoundly channels the course we take in life. And unknown unknowns constitute a grand swath of everyone's field of ignorance. Now, people often come up with answers to problems that are okay, but they're not the best solutions. The reason they don't come up with those solutions is that they're simply not aware of them. The average detective does not realize the clues he or she neglects. The mediocre doctor is not aware of the diagnostic possibilities or treatments never considered. The run-of-the-mill lawyer fails to recognize the winning legal argument that's out there. People fail to, to reach their potential as professionals, lovers, parents, and people simply because they are not aware of the possible. Now, Barry Brownstein concludes by saying what Professor Dunning, Jim Farrell, and Clint Eastwood observe is as old as time. Yet the Yale research suggests the Internet, for all its good, is enabling delusional arrogance. Civil discourse and the development of our potential can be the causalities. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. These are show notes for May 17th. 2021. And I hope you'll take the time to click on and read this essay from Barry Brownstein from intellectualtakeout.org. And like me, after you finish off that slice, however big or small, of humble pie, let's continue moving forward, expanding our understanding, thinking clearly and independently, and then using our influence wherever we happen to be standing to help others see the truth as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Okay, welcome back to the show. And again, thank you so much for being part of our audience today. Hopefully my particular brand of wrong think isn't uh, turning you off like a cold shower and sending you running for the hills. By the way, if you do find value in this uh, in this podcast or this broadcast, I would ask you, please click on the subscribe button. You'll find it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. If you really find value, I mean, like if, if you seriously feel like, hey, I'm impressed. Well, you sound like a good young man. I would ask you consider becoming a patron and a monthly supporter of this program. There's a handful of people who do it. I love them all. I appreciate what they're doing. And yes, it does help me focus on what I do best, which is uh, curating and finding and disseminating the best content that I can find. So thank you in advance. So I, I haven't made too big of a secret out of this. I guess my uh, my operational security is is shot, but I'm in the process of moving my family to a neighboring state. And this is a move that we've actually been considering for many, many years for, well, almost 25 years to be exact, because that's when we moved away from from our family and uh, from this particular uh, place. But I'm seeing this massive exodus occurring and I'm realizing, you know what, we are a part of this and, and I'm feeling this. We went to uh, to rent a moving van um, and <laughs> holy cow, you want to talk about supply and demand it was it was the 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 sad lesson s a d supply and demand why is it so expensive to rent a moving van one way and it's because there's so much demand right now and it's crazy so we're part of this exodus, which is taking us from uh, a fairly large metropolitan area with very very high population to a more rural setting and you know I'm not going to lie. There's a part of my heart that is just ready for less traffic, less, you know, built up um, civilization. Not that I don't mind the amenities I do. And there's a lot of great friends and uh, people that that I dearly love where I where I'm currently at. But I'm also looking forward to, you know, quiet. <laughs> I'm looking forward to sprinklers going in fields and and uh, you know the sun going down. That's that's the kind of stuff that uh, that just really appeals to me. But I saw this article from Chloe Anagnos. Uh, this was uh, published on the Independent Institute's blog. Lockdown led big city exodus and the question mark is this an economic boost to small towns? And I wanted you to hear her take because maybe this is something you're seeing where where you are. She says smaller cities and bigger towns in the heart of America are seeing a considerable influx of new residents. And with this, we should expect to see a boost in their economies as well. But while there is enough data to to support the notion that Americans in large cities like New York City and San Francisco are moving to smaller metros, legacy media is resisting it, choosing instead to deny that the government-led interventions prompted by COVID-19 have hurt Americans enough to force them to flee. But despite their attempt to ignore the economic reality of a large portion of the urban population, the economic downturn brought by the lockdowns forced some people to rethink their living arrangements. With an ongoing difficulty for many to find jobs in large metro areas, despite the slow reopening of the economy, the moving trend could continue well into the future, helping to reshape small-town USA. And believe it or not, that will uh, what will continue to drive urbanites out of the big cities isn't a virus but rather government itself. 
So at the height of the pandemic, she writes, the federal government passed more than $5 trillion in fiscal stimulus, sending direct payments to countless households and expanding unemployment benefits to millions of others. To many struggling with student loan debt, a freeze in payments meant some relief, while a Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC-led eviction moratorium, helped many remain in place and avoid immediate economic ruin. However, Americans are still indebted. According to Business Insider, roughly 9% of subprime auto borrowers were more than 60 days delinquent in 2020's fourth quarter. Now, because this class of borrowers often has a more vulnerable financial situation, finance experts fear that fewer of those with subprime auto loans will keep up with their payments. And she says since the or despite rather the modest economic recovery we've seen in the past month, America is still down 8.4 million jobs since the pandemic began. With the risk of an increased share of delinquent subprime auto borrowers looming on the horizon, more people will find themselves at risk of losing it all. Now, while the Joe Biden administration promises to continue to provide additional cash benefits through 2021, elected officials are pointing out that U.S. debt is growing at an unsustainable rate. So while it may be hard for Congress to say no to any additional pandemic-related spending, anyone can plainly see that not even Washington, D.C., can continue sending out checks indiscriminately for the foreseeable future. So what happens when people who rely on taxpayer-backed aid can no longer do so? Without a home, a car, or a job, living in the big city might not seem so appealing after all. Now, smaller metros, she says, are beginning to take the cake. Before the beginning of the pandemic, millennials were ahead of the curve, choosing smaller towns in a search for more in, in search of more affordable housing and schooling. And with the rolling out of the lockdowns, the increase in unemployment pushed yet more people to relocate. Smaller metros with more affordable housing and enough cultural and economic opportunities became the perfect spot for those who simply were not making it work in the big city. While the number of people who fled between the early months of the pandemic and early 2021 is still small in comparison to the population of large metros such as San Francisco, Los Angeles, Seattle, or New York, the small growth smaller cities are registering will will have a lasting impact in their overall economic health. In fact, she says, as noted by consultants Remington Tonar and Ellis Talton, the considerable influx of new residents can positively impact smaller metros in a series of ways. The most obvious is the relationship between population growth and the increased demand for a series of goods and services, which will then drive the demand for the creation or expansion of businesses, increasing employment numbers and helping drive the GDP up. But that isn't the only way smaller cities benefit. She says the increased growth can also help residents retain the residents, rather, who otherwise would have left. In other words, when longtime residents see their towns flourish, they think twice before selling everything and moving to what the duo called the highly romanticized cities. So whether or not smaller cities will continue to reap the benefits of being less heavily regulated than their larger neighbors for many years to come, one thing is for sure. The prohibiting costs of living in larger urban areas has only become worse During the pandemic, with growing government interference in the real estate market, the only people who can truly afford new homes in desired neighborhoods in 2021 are the rich. Additionally, the top down stay at home orders, many of which were extended by city and county officials in spite of governors lifting orders, imposed a much larger burden on small and medium sized businesses. And the result was a much harder unemployment rate in those areas. So if major city officials are at all worried about the economic health of their constituents, 
they would think twice before imposing additional housing restrictions and business-related taxes as people try to recover from the government-instigated crisis. Now, Chloe Anagno says, while I believe we should highlight the growth that middle-sized cities and larger towns are already experiencing as a result of the influx of new residents post-COVID, destruction is never the solution to stagnant economies. As economist uh, French, as French economist Frederick Bastiat explained in Bastiat rather explained in 1850, if someone intentionally breaks a window, the the glazier might the glazier that's called to fix it might benefit, but only at the expense of the shopkeeper who had to shut down until the matter was resolved, losing money as a result. In other words, there is no upside to destruction because it doesn't create jobs or boost total income, as economist Robert Murphy explained in in a linked article. So she says, while some groups will benefit from these events, in this case, smaller metros, society as a whole is either stagnant or at best, at best rather, or poorer at worst. I'm looking at this as an opportunity. And, and I know, you know, for all I know, you know, the, the folks where I'm moving may be like, oh, great. Here comes another out-of-stater, you know, moving from a population center, probably bringing big city ideas. I hope that's not the case. And I know a lot of people there, so I'm, I'm really hoping that they're like, oh, well, it's good to have you back. But for all the people who are fleeing, say, California or maybe Washington State or some of the places that, that have a little more, uh, uh, how can I say this, a little more government-focused uh, uh, ruling party, I think that uh, there's a prime opportunity. Yes, it's likely they may bring some bad ideas or some bad habits, but here's what I can bring to the table. And I'm only offering this as a suggestion. You don't have to embrace this. Rather than viewing those transplants, of which I am one, as, you know, uh, an enemy to be vanquished, right? For all their crazy California ideas or whatever. Instead, I'm going to be doing my level best to see them as a prize to be won. And that doesn't mean I'm going to fake them into becoming conservatives. Ah, you know, trick them. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. What I intend to do is simply, um, by dint of what I believe and, and what I am willing to live up to, is I'm going to increase my own candle power, treat them as well as any friend could treat them, and hopefully by the power of example and genuine friendship, persuade them that uh, maybe this whole freedom thing is a better way. At the very least, they'll have some ideas to consider. Who knows? Maybe at best... They may find that they get a taste of freedom and actually like it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.